0: Heroes are an inspiring group of people. Every one of them from the larger than life comic book heroes you see on the big silver screen to the everyday heroes that let us live the privileged lives we do. Every hero has a story to tell. The doctor saving lives at your local hospital. The war veteran down the street who risked his lives for our freedom. The police officers and firefighters who risk their safety to ensure ours. Every hero is special and every story worth telling, but there is one class of heroes that I think is often ignored. The entrepreneur. The creator. The producer. The ones who look at the problems in this world and think to themselves you know what i can fix that i can help people and i can make a difference then they go out and do exactly that by creating a new product or introducing a new service some go on to change the world others make a world of difference to their customers welcome to the hero show join us as we pull back the masks of the world's finest heropreneurs and learn the secrets to their powers their success and their influence so you can use those secrets to attract more sales, make more money, and experience more freedom in your business. I'm your host, Richard Matthews, and we are on in three, two, one. Okay, hello and welcome back to the Hero Show. I am live on the line with Emily Kumler Kaplan or Kaplan, are you there? Emily? Yes. Hi. Awesome. Glad to have you here. Let me do a quick introduction for you. I've got it over here on my other screen. So if I'm looking the other way, it's uh, um, Emily, you are an award winning investigative journalist as ABC News staffer, a newspaper reporter, columnist, magazine writer. You've gone inside the minds of murderers, world leaders, celebrities, business innovators, and everyone in between. Your fascination is with how our personal narratives play a major role in our experiences. Um, it makes you a captivating writer and speaker. Let's see, you've contributed to the New York Times, Boston Globe, Boston Magazine, Good Morning America, New York Daily News, Cosmopolitan Magazine, The Daily Beast, and other media outlets. You also write a weekly health column for Boston Magazine. So you've got quite a star-studded list of places you've been in. Yep. So yeah, I guess to start off with, what I'd like to find out is what is it that you're known for? Like, what's your business like now? What is it that you actually, uh, you 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 know, do you run a business outside of your journalism or is it just the journalism that you do for, for work now? What does, uh, what's your business look like? What do you know? Yeah. To-
1: so right now it's, um, you know, it's sort of funny. I feel like the last year has been sort of like my coming out party because for a long time I was a journalist and also separately, I would sort of take breaks from journalism to run startup companies. So I've run two companies. Um, and one of the ones that I'm running now is called prime fitness and nutrition. And it's sort of sister to that is a podcast called Empowered Health. And both are really focused on women's health. So we have three brick and mortar locations that are the prime fitness locations um, with about 120 clients in each. And they're really geared towards middle-aged women who are trying to sort of reclaim health and lose weight. And the podcast is really sort of taking a lot of the work we've done in the gyms and open it up to a wider audience. And so what we've learned is that When women go to the doctor, most of the information that they're getting is not actually based on female bodies. It's the most of the research and most of the clinical trials are really done on men. And women's bodies are quite different than men's. And the hormonal regulatory system is quite different. And so we get different diseases in different proportions. We present different symptoms, but yet we're often given the same treatment. And when the treatment doesn't work for women, people sort of act stunned. And the deeper yeah. you get into this, the more you sort of realize, like, why are you stunned? Why are you making the assumption that our bodies are actually the same? They're not. And so for me, this has really become um, sort of like a nice marriage of both backgrounds. The other startup company that I worked on was based in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and then in Kuwait. So I did some traveling in the Middle East for that. And it had nothing to do with journalism. I mean, it had. I had to be able to sort of be resourceful um and I actually think there's a lot of crossover which we could definitely talk about between sort of entrepreneurial endeavors and journalism um Mm -hmm. so for me it doesn't feel like a stretch but I feel like people are always very confused they're like are you a journalist or are you a business lady (laughs) I'm like I'm both (laughs) so I'm um, both
0: and and they, they work together well
1: and they work together yeah and the podcast is doing so well which I love because I feel like the more women have this real sort of evidence-based information, the more women can have informed conversations with their doctors, many of whom don't even understand these sex differences. um, And the more they can really navigate the very complex landscape of our healthcare system.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's, the healthcare system is a really interesting place. Um, And I, because there is, and has been for a lot of years, um, doctors were put in a position of authority because of schooling they have that the general population doesn't have. Correct. And it was like you go into a doctor's office and it's it's like the doctor is God and the patient is his um, you know is his underlings right and you just listen to what they say. Um, and then what we've come to sort of see over the last ten years or so is that doctors are fallible and human, just as the like the rest of us. Absolutely. Right? And, you know, you, you don't learn everything there is to know in medical school, right? You learn the things that are taught to you. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And if it's not included in your education, you, you don't know it. Right. Um, so like. It,
1: and that in some ways, there's nothing wrong with that. Right. That like yeah. the idea that you, you should acknowledge that you don't know everything. Yeah. Is super important. Right.
0: <laughs> yeah. I actually, I ran, um, I did a, um, a bunch of, uh, journalism and some work in, uh, in a sexual health space for men with regard to circumcision. Um, and one of the things I found out um, in that course of study is uh, the U.S. American Medical Association and their, their training systems, um, there's 46 different, um, different training regimens that you can go through for human physiology. Um, and 45 out of 46 of them teach male anatomy, um, as if th- with, with circumcision being a, um, would you call it a, uh, an assumption of birthing mm-hmm. baby boys. Mm-hmm. So they don't teach any of, they don't teach doctors in America what the foreskin's purpose is or what it does or any of the things for it. They're just like, this is, this is a foreskin and this is how you cut it off. And so the overwhelming majority of American doctors don't even know how to deal with or look at like the way a male body is actually born. Yeah. Um, and, and so like, it's just one of those things that really surprised me about our American education system for doctors. And it it made me realize is like, like that, that applies in a lot of different ways. Right. We think you, you, you go in thinking doctors know everything and you realize doctors know what they're taught.
1: That's right. Um, Right. And what they're taught is so limited. I mean, like Mm -hmm. when we launched the podcast, one of the goals that I had, I was a tech reporter for a while and I would, I had this repeated experience where I would call women, who were the authority on whatever I was writing about. And they would say, oh, you know, like, thanks so much, but I think you should really talk to this male colleague of mine. And I would sort of be like, all right, I've never asked a guy to do an interview and had him say, no, you should talk to this woman. Or really, I almost never turned down for an interview, Mm -hmm. right? Um, And so with this, I was like, let's try to see if we can find more female researchers to talk about it. And what's so fascinating is that, It's actually like it's so heavily loaded on female sources in part because what we've learned is that women go to med school and they start learning about stuff and they're like, huh, that's interesting. Like that really doesn't apply to me or that hasn't been my experience or like my mom had heart disease, but it didn't show up when she went to the cath lab, right, or some other sort of um, anecdotal experience that has informed them to challenge what they learned in med school. And so then they sort of do really well in med school. They get out, they follow the, you know, sort of status quo of what they're supposed to do. They build a name for themselves. And then when they can get enough money to fund the studies on women in heart disease or menopausal changes or, you know, sort of major, major things, that are important for women's you know, long-term health, longevity, experiences, all of that, that's what they do. And so in terms of looking at this, I mean, everything from like, we did a really great episode on women in need, which was like yeah. really looking at how THC impacts women differently, especially when you're ovulating, you're more likely to have a four times heightened high which they, the researcher basically said is like probably true for alcohol. It's definitely true for opioids. Like, but nobody's telling young girls when they're learning how to drink, or they're like going to their first party. Like you should know where you are in your menstrual cycle because you might like puke your guts out if you're ovulating (laughs) and you start drinking. Right. Nobody really knew any of this stuff, but she sort of started looking at sex differences and how it interplays with estrogen and other hormones, testosterone, and realized there was this big sex difference. Um, you know, and we we see that like in every episode, it's like just
0: incredibly yeah,
1: fascinating and exciting because the more there's more women graduating now from med school than men, and so you sort of think like we've got to even this out. You know what
0: I mean? Yeah, like, it's it's really fascinating too because there's I like there's so much there's so much that we don't know, mm-hmm. um, and like like one of my favorite things that's ha- that's happening like if you know I grew up in the uh, in the early '90s, and so I I remember. Uh, like, a lot of things about, like, the government and talking about our food, like, what's healthy mm-hmm. food, right, mm-hmm. and I, just in my lifetime, eggs have gone from being healthy to unhealthy to healthy to unhealthy, like, four or five times, right, because right? totally. nobody knows, um, and, like, where where it's coming down is, it's, like, wh- what we're finding out is that different foods affect different people differently, right, based on things like gender and, gene, you know, gene makeup and, you know, race, even, like, they have, like, a healthy diet for me, is not mm-hmm. a healthy diet for you.
1: Mm-hmm. I mean, I, <laughs> um, do, I feel like I would push back on that a little bit. I think like the standard American diet is such crap.
0: That's but, true. like
1: getting off of all the processed foods is good for everybody, right? That's, and that then is like if you're really trying true. to dial it in in some way where you're like a high performing athlete versus like just somebody who's, you know, sort of has a normal output and is looking to like be thin or fit or look good or whatever like maybe you do different things but i actually think the reason that we say everybody needs a different diet isn't because we're born needing a different diet it's almost like how messed up is your system yeah and if your system if you've eaten the standard american diet for 20 years you're going to be at a different place than somebody who's never eaten that way or somebody who's eaten that way for 60 years and so it's That's interesting. That's a really good point in the gyms we often have women who come in and are like it's not fair like my daughter can eat candy all day and she doesn't ever get fat or like my best friend, you know, lives on bagels or donuts or whatever. And I kind of think of it as like, somebody once said this to me, and I think it's such a great analogy. It's like you, I wouldn't go in the sun without sunscreen on, Mm -hmm. right? Somebody else might, right? And they might not be, they might not burn or get, you know, like um, skin cancer or anything else, but like, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to say like, that's not fair my friend doesn't have to wear sunscreen so i'm not going to right it's like we all have to know our own bodies and take care of them according to the damage we've already done right that we can't reverse but we can stop making a sort of a part of our daily life and then we can also move forward and make better choices so that we can sort of protect ourselves in a more long-term kind of way but that that is where it becomes very specific which is why like you know the food studies are some of the w- most garbage like I honestly say to people all the time that, like, if my, you know, second grader turned in some of these reports that are these <laughs> epidemiological, like, statistic p-hacking, total crap studies, like he would fail. His science teacher yeah. would say, like, your methods are ridiculous. I mean, like, there's a big colorectal um, cancer study out of the World Health Organization that looks at red meat. Yeah. And. Says that, you know, if you the more red meat you eat, the higher risk you are for developing colorectal cancer, which is something that's really affecting younger people in a way that nobody can explain. And what's fascinating is that if you actually go back and you look, they categorize things like pizza as red meat. What? So when they were trying to, yeah, no, I mean, it's like some of the worst science you've ever heard of in your life. And then even things like, um, they asked questions, like all food frequency questionnaires, which have a very low, I mean, like try to remember what you ate six weeks ago. Like, unless you are really diligent yesterday. Right. Totally. I mean, like one of the things we do is a sound check on our podcast is we say like, oh, what did you eat the night before? Just to get the person talking so we can check their sound levels. And like, it's hysterical because people are like, what did I eat last night? And I'm always like, yeah. And that's how they're doing all of this nutrition research. <laughs> oh,
0: they're doing right? the research, yeah. And so that's they terrible. would ask things
1: like, how many cups of ribs did you eat in the last six weeks? How many cups of ribs, like bone in, bone out? Like, how do you measure a cup of a rib?
0: Yeah, like I have right? no idea. So it's like That's not just how ribs simply, are measured.
1: It's the worst. It's and so like you know it's not. You measure
0: how, ribs by how many napkins you had to use when you that ate That
1: would them. be better. That would be a yeah. much more accurate <laughs> analysis. So I think a lot of that stuff is just you know it's like people say it's too expensive to test on human subjects, but the result is we've spent you know hundreds of millions of dollars on these studies that really are inconclusive at the end, which is pretty frustrating.
0: Yeah, I think I think I have uh, I I've, I've lucked out in the food category cuz my wife loves to cook, so I get home cooked food for everything. Yeah, that's um,
1: it. I mean, I feel like if we just so. ate like our grandparents
0: ate, we'd be fine. We'd, we'd yeah. be much
1: better off, yeah. Yeah. Definitely. And and
0: like this is this is the secret that I, you know, my secret that I tell everyone is like when you make it yourself, it's better. Like it right. tastes better.
1: Right.
0: Like the other day my my wife made roast chicken and vegetables, um uh, which again it's all from scratch and she was like I, I wanted, she wanted to start with the meal and she's like, we weren't, we didn't have any potatoes. She's like, I'm going to make stuffing. And, and I was like, from what? We don't have stuffing. She's like, she always makes stuffing from a box of the holidays. And she was like, I'm going to make it from scratch. So she took some rolls and chopped them all up and toasted them and made, and, you know, Ooh. did all of her vegetables and whatnot and, um, and put them all in a sauce and came out and she was like, this is why, why you should make it from scratch. Cause it's just ridiculously better. Like everything right. you make from scratch is so much better. Right. Um, and, and I was like, I feel like, I feel like my grandma had it right. Mm-hmm. Um, and
1: <laughs> yeah, no. I <laughs> mean, I think that's the go. thing. And then I think you know, you go to like Whole Foods or you know whatever your fancy local natural food store is, and you think that you can get prepared foods, right? But the thing is that they're cooking that with all kinds of crappy oil, and like, I mean, it's not the same as what you would make at home.
0: Yeah, and like, I don't, I don't know what this thing is. Like, have you heard of the Beyond Meat? Yes. Then yeah, Beyond Meat is getting all sorts of attention right now because of their big IPO. And like, if you look at the ingredients on Beyond Meat, it's like it's like a huge thick paragraph to mm-hmm. of like all stuff you've never heard of before, and it's like you take the same like ground beef burger patty that you've made from Beyond Meat, and it's like what what the ingredients? It's like beef. Right. right? <laughs> right. No, <laughs> I mean, what are you putting in your body?
1: <laughs> it's such a good point because you you want to be able to know what you're putting in, and if you can't even yeah. pronounce it, you probably shouldn't eat it.
0: Yeah, yeah. So I totally get that where you're coming from on that. So I guess I. I want, to, uh, I want to transition a little bit and talk about your, your origin story, which is how did you get into all of this sort of this, this <laughs> business, right? How did it happen for you? We talk all the time on the show. Every hero has their origin story. It's where you started to realize that maybe you were different. Maybe you had superpowers and maybe you could use them to help other people. How did that happen for you?
1: So, I mean, I think we're going to go into sort of like a therapy session here, but part of it is definitely like the family that I grew up in. So I grew up in a very intellectual family and my older sister, who is an art history professor, who's sort of world famous, um, is really brilliant. And I think growing up in a family with two parents and an older sister, I had younger siblings, but, you know, sort of formative years in that environment. Really taught me how to fail, and I know that sound. I'm not like I'm not asking for sympathy. This was like the best thing that could have ever happened, really, because I think I kind of came out of the womb not a disappointment, but just so different than the Mm -hmm. rest of my family that um, you know I was much more social than my parents or my older sister still are today, Um, and I think that difference felt out of place. But mm-hmm. it also allowed me to learn to take risks because I think had I not had that, I would have been nervous that like I would have been a disappointment. Whereas if you sort of start out as a disappointment, then you, you're you kind of like, okay, well, I got this, like I can t- raise my hand or try this thing because what's the worst that's going to happen? I'm going to end up right where I started, right? And if something yeah. great happens from it, well, awesome, right? And so I think that probably was a huge influence on me when I was younger, which was hard when I was younger, right? But now looking back on it, it kind of has all worked itself out. And I think that also really made me intensely interested in people and how Mm -hmm. there was such a range of kind of how people respond in situations and how people think about things and how people judge each other. Um, And all of that, you know, certainly comes out in the businesses that I've run as well as in the, you know, sort of world of journalism. And, you know, I often joke when I'm asked to do any kind of public speaking that like I've interviewed murderers and CEOs and the real difference that you see is that like one group of people was really listened to and one group wasn't. And that especially when you start talking about, you know, sort of things like gang violence or any kind of socioeconomic discrepancy in crime rates, it's fascinating, because it's like what people really want is pretty much the same. People want their kids to be safe, they want to be able to feed them, they want to have jobs, they want to work hard, they want to have a sense of purpose, and if one group doesn't get that, or if one person doesn't get that, right, we see this with women and men, it doesn't really matter, it's just sort of humanity, then the behavior escalates until people start paying attention, And that can happen in very negative ways. Now it happens in really positive ways when you're looking at like the power set. But Mm -hmm. I often think that like some of the things that we seem to value the most in our society are things like perseverance, right? We talk a lot about grit, right? These kinds of things are so interesting because we really respect those in certain people. But like, I think African-American single moms display more grit and perseverance And sort of self-integrity and uh, devotion to raising their kids in a way that's better than what they had—that they're not. We don't make heroes out of them, right? I mean, like, we should, I think. And so I sort of think there's a whole. As at a very young age, I became very interested in not just what we say we like about people, but why we place value on some people and not others, and why that value seems to hold different meaning based on who it's represented in. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, yeah, and it almost seems like there's there's a there's a disconnect between how individuals place value on other individuals and how society places um right. the same value on yeah, individuals. I think
1: that's totally right. I mean, right? I, because, this is all like anecdot- you know, this is all my own observation. So in some ways Yeah, cuz
0: cuz not- looking at it, like if if you uh if you look at how people um how people like interact, the uh generally speaking, interpersonally, people will value other individuals, um, especially if they're actually talking in person. Like if we just discount the way people treat each other on social media, because that's mm-hmm. just not real life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> people are very, they're nice to each other, right? And one of, one of the things that, and one of the things that I've noticed in our travels is that we live in a really great world. Like people are just generally good people. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's interesting that that doesn't get reflected in the way society looks at itself and looks at the individuals inside of society, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, no, it makes, I I completely understand that and agree with you. And I think, you know, that's part of why I think people, you know, sort of thought technology would be the ultimate equalizer, right? Mm -hmm. Because it would sort of take out some of this bias, but in fact, it actually just amplifies. Like amplifies it. Yeah. And so going around and actually talking to people, is like incredibly powerful. I mean one of my favorite Mm -hmm. things when I was working at 2020 in primetime was I would be on a plane basically like three days a week dropped into like different sort of crises around the country and it didn't matter where you were right and as a member of the media people could be pretty hostile right but you could talk to people and you could get to know them and they'd be people that I would never normally come across in my day-to-day life and I would inevitably learn something. So people are always like, oh, you have such a cool job, whatever. And I'm like, it's the most selfish job because every day you're learning something different, right? It's like a totally one story to the next could be totally different. And then on top of that, like I'm talking to people who are sharing their stories with me, which I think are like, I think that that's our most valuable commodity, the stories that we have. And when we die, all we have left is the stories, right? Like you might have tons of money and your heirs might blow it all in the first year that you're gone or Whatever, but what people will remember and what they'll keep talking about is what your story is, right? And that sort of keeps people company, I think, after you're gone in a way. Yeah. And so I valued that so much. And I just sort of felt like selfishly, I was learning so much about myself, right? Like when you hear somebody else talk about how they've dealt with something that was really hard and they're making themselves really vulnerable to you, it's impossible not to be vulnerable back and not to acknowledge you the flaws that I have, right? Or the things that I struggle with. And so I feel like that's a really that's a very lucky job to have.
0: Yeah. And I I, I don't tell all my listeners this, but my secret, the reason I run this show is because I get to do that. I get yeah. to bring cool people on and hear their stories. <laughs> like it's selfishly, I do this show because I get to experience stories from people. It's the same same kind of uh you know reality for me. And like I tell one of the things I tell my kids all the time is that we're a story born people. Um, and what that means is that you can judge the depth of a relationship based on stories. Um, so I, I measure it like this for people is that an acquaintance is someone whose name you might know, but whose story you don't. And a friend would be someone whose name, you know, and whose story you also know. And a best friend would be someone who you've shared all of your stories with each other. And the only way to deepen your relationship is to go out and create new stories together. Right. I and, love
1: that. Yeah.
0: yeah. And that's and, and if you look at it, there's a lot of truth to that, because that's how that's how we we deepen relationships with someone is, you know, you meet someone. It's like, hey, what's your name? Tell me about your family. What do you do? Right. It's sharing stories. Mm-hmm. And the more stories you share, the closer you become as people. Right. Like my wife is probably the closest person to me. I've heard every story she's ever had right? Like, she can't surprise me anymore. I've heard everything, right? Same thing the other way around. Like, at this point, my wife knows all of my stories and how I tell them to other people. So, our only opportunity to continue to deepen our relationship is to continue to create new stories together. Right. Um, right. So, yeah, I Well, and that's what I think is so cool
1: about what you guys are doing on the road, too, because your kids are learning through their own stories, right? So, like, when you go to the Alamo with your kids... They're studying the Alamo, but they're also like, oh, my God, I'm here in this right now, experiencing it in a way that I'm sure cements it in their memory in a totally different way than if they just read it in a book.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Because it becomes part of their story, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's something that, that they, they're they connected with personally. Um, and it's one of the things I've, I've really loved about traveling with, with my wife as well, right? We just hit 11 years of marriage. And, you know, they, uh, well, thank you. Yeah. Uh, they say, uh, uh, statistically, a lot of marriages don't make it past 10 years. Um, and, and like, it's looking at it logically, I can see why, right? And you can see the, one of the reasons why is because you, you've exhausted all of your opportunities together if you're not out creating more stories, right? If you're just constantly stuck in a rut, you could get bored, right? You're yeah. not, you're not doing anything. Yeah. You have no more stories to share. Um, and the, uh, um, and, you know, I could see how you would lose interest. Um, well, that's and that's definitely think- something
1: that you hear from people too, right? Is that the yeah. complaint is like, oh, we never do anything, or like this isn't exciting anymore? And that's probably speaking just to what you're talking about. Is like, you're not out creating new memories, you're not out creating, you're having new experiences that you're sharing together. I think that's yeah. And
0: um, so I think for for us, it was sort of um, it. It wasn't a reason why we started traveling, but it's a an, an unintended extra benefit of like it's it's keeping you know we're constantly having new experiences and new stories with each other and with other people and new people um and it's brought us really close which um is is really cool um mm-hmm. and it's to your point that's that's why you know we the stories of individuals i think are it's it's the currency we trade in for relationships
1: yeah no i i couldn't agree more absolutely
0: yeah so I want to move on a little bit and talk about your superpowers, right? Your is oh what you bring to the table for your various businesses, whether that's your journalism or your gems um, or your podcast. What is it that you think you bring to the table that helps really solve problems for this, for your clients or for your readers um, that, you know, I think that you, you know, that you used to slay this world's villains, so to speak.
1: Well, I mean, I definitely think that the ability to empathize with other people is something that I'm good at. And that is also a definitely a very important skill set in what I
0: do. So can you uh, can you define empathy for those of us who don't have big vocabularies.
1: Yeah, well, so I mean, I think it's really the ability to put yourself in somebody else's shoes that in, that's experiencing something that you have not experienced um and sort of see through their eyes how they're viewing the world which in my case is often seeing people who are pretty scared or nervous or you know in danger or um just trying to make a change about something in their life and they don't really know how to so you know i often think back to like even when i was like in high school i like i worked my uncle was one of the um earliest cases of aids or hiv and um he you know it was like sort of so disturbing to see how sick he was and how people weren't were really terrified and didn't want to take care of him because they didn't know enough i mean i don't blame those yeah. people i think it was a really really scary time um but that made me really intensely interested in like sort of sex ed and like how do kids learn these things and also like how do we as a culture sort of i don't know encourage certain things and then people get sick and we don't really know how to handle it i mean all the repercussions for that were kind of fascinating and so I ended up developing this survey that I used at my school in Cambridge, Massachusetts, um, and surveyed the student population. And then I had lived in Italy my junior year of high school. And I went back for part of my senior year and interviewed that class or that school population to compare them because obviously in Rome, Italy, everybody's very Catholic and no one's allowed Mm -hmm. to really talk about sex, but the kids are all doing stuff, right? And so it's sort of like, how does education play a role in all of this? And I think in some ways that was sort of my first epidemiological study or like big survey population or like understanding statistics or how do you measure things. But for me, it was also a big part of the survey that I designed was asking people to talk about what they were scared of or like what they wish they knew more about. And that is journalism one-on-one, right? It's like just finding a way to talk to people or to gather information to see like, is there a story here? What is this about? And I think- in a lot of the sort of entrepreneurial endeavors that I've been a part of, or that, you know, I have friends that have been a part of a huge part of it is like, is there a market need for this? Right. How are you going to develop something that's going to satiate that market? How are you going to, um, you know, sort of do research and be scrappy and do all of this without much money to get started, to see if there really is something that's a concept that you could build on and make money off of. And then how do you convince other people that it's a great idea and they should invest? (laughs) And in journalism, it's really the same process, right? You sort of like, you hear something from somebody, you think, huh, that's kind of interesting. I didn't know that before. Or I bet a lot of people don't know that. And then you kind of have to say, like, is it, is that true? Right? Is that a real thing? Or is this a one-off? And if it's a real thing, then how do I get people to talk to me? What is the, what is the sort of not market demand in that case, but like, what is the audience demand for this? And then who are the right sources Mm -hmm. to talk to, to tell that story? And then how do you put it all together in a way that makes people latch onto it and want to share that information? I mean, for me, those are very similar processes. Um, Yeah, it's
0: almost, almost exactly the same.
1: Right. And I think it's, um. And so I think for me, you know, my other superpower would probably be like a good thing and a bad thing, which is that I sort of am crazy curious. And so my mom would say that I'm like insatiably curious, which means that like I'm never satisfied. I always want to know more. Um, But I think for both of those, both of the things that I sort of enjoy doing from a business perspective, it works, right? I mean, it's hard because as soon as I get bored, I'm kind of out the door right because i feel like okay check i've learned what i needed to learn and now i'm on to the next yeah. problem challenge whatever um, but from a personal perspective i feel like it, i get a lot of stuff done
0: <laughs> yeah it makes a lot of sense and like one of the things that i was thinking when you talked about empathy too is em- empathy is like it's like the uh, quintessential skill for a business owner or a ceo or whoever is doing the marketing for a business because you have to you have to be able to put yourself into the buyer's shoes and see mm-hmm. what they're seeing and experience the problems that they're experiencing. So you can communicate with them. Right. Which Absolutely. means, you know, understanding their story and understanding where they're coming from and that kind of stuff. So yeah, I can, I could definitely see how that would be a, a superpower uh, <laughs> for, for, you know, someone such as yourself.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think the other, like both curiosity and empathy have bad sides to them too. Like I feel like I have to be a little protective when I'm covering really tough stuff to not allow myself to sort of take on those feelings or, You know, I hate to say, like, become too close to the problem, but I think that can be kind of a liability that anybody who, you know, is deeply empathetic or involved in these kinds of things, like, does need to actually be protective in ways.
0: Yeah, absolutely. The usual, we'll be right back. Are you tired of trying to write webinars that don't consistently convert? How would you like to have a webinar that effortlessly created sales in your online business? You can't. Introducing the Webinar Alchemy Workshop. Webinar Alchemy Workshop is an online masterclass that will help you write incredibly persuasive webinars for your online courses quickly and easily. Using what you learn in this class, you can build a webinar that educates your entire audience while still creating sales. For a limited time, you can purchase this masterclass for only $7, and you'll get the exact framework I've personally used to help my clients sell more than a million dollars worth of online coaching and training just over the last year. Simply text the word ALCHEMY, A-L-C-H-E-M-Y, to 444-999, and I'll send you all the details. The music is by Purple Planet Music. Visit www.purple-planet.com. And now, back to the show. Um, so I want to talk about the uh, sort of the, the flip side of the, the superpower, which is the fatal flaw. Right. So fatal flaw, um, like Superman has his kryptonite, or Batman's not actually a superhero, he just works hard and has lots of money, right? <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> the fatal flaw is something that you think has either held, your ba- held back your career or held back your business in a way that you've had to work on, right? You've had to overcome something to, to make, it, um, make yourself have the success and influence you have today. What, sort of, what do you think that is? And I think more importantly, how have you worked to overcome that for other people who might struggle with something similar?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think I probably have a long list of these. So, um, I think we all do. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like, you know, the learning curve one is probably one that when I was younger caused more problems because I think, um, at a certain level, there's an immaturity that comes from the idea that you get in, you figure something out and then you can move on because as you sort of peel back, layers of the onion or whatever you want to sort of say you realize that there's a lot more to learn by sometimes just sitting with stuff so you might think that you've got it all figured out but you don't because nobody really has anything figured out and so once you sort of that is accurate you know so like once you sort of acknowledge like okay i'm kind of bored but why am i bored am i bored because i've really learned everything that i there is to learn probably not <laughs> right probably because like I had my goal set on one thing and I've accomplished that. And now I think it's time to move on. And so, you know, I think that is something that I still struggle with because I still feel like sometimes a lot of, a lot of life is sort of mundane, right? And you have to sort of be able to stick with it and get all that stuff done in order to do the stuff that you really love to. And um, I'd say that's something that I'm like, definitely, you know, I'm still very aware of because I like to sort of be in the fire um, one of my best friends who I've been friends with since high school jokes that I am the friend that like, if you get sent to jail, like you call Emily and she'll get you out and she'll figure out, you know, she'll put you in hiding and like, you'll be fine. And no one will know where you are and she'll solve all the problems. But like, I don't call friends regularly. Like I don't have time. And I feel like I, you should know I'm always there for you if there's an emergency, but I'm not the kind of person who's going to talk to you on the phone for an hour every day. And so I have to have friends that understand that, you know what I mean, in a way that like yeah, I yeah. love you completely, but that is not my area of just chit chatting. Like I'm not, I'm just not good at that. And I think just not that, that person. No. And you know, and some people are and some people need that. And I don't feel like I really need that. Like when I see friends that I haven't seen for a while, I want to get right into it. Like, what's going on? What's been hard? What have I missed? You know? Um, actually it was really interesting doing business in the Middle East. One of the things that I learned was um they really like to talk like for like seven hours about you and something in the news cycle or the weather and like i'm like we got a deal we gotta like are we gonna talk about the deal when is this is happening and they want to get to know you and so that was really interesting because i remember being like are we here to talk about the thing that i think we're here to talk about or like is this like a date like what is happening but it was just sort of like they would sit and have coffee for like six hours and smoke a ton of cigarettes and like you'd just be sort of hanging out and then all of a sudden the deal would happen and then it would happen in five minutes if they liked you. And yeah. so, you know, I feel like all that, you know, just sort of being open to like the different ways that things happen, I would say that that's, I always feel like I've been very open, but I also am, um, I guess, a little impatient.
0: Yeah. So I have, I have a curious question for you. This is something I learned from my wife recently that okay. really opened something up for me. And I'm curious because it sounds like you have a similar like, thought process. So, so here's, here's my curious question, something that my, my, wife, my wife taught me that I was not aware of, um, that I think you have something very similar going on. And I'm just curious if you, if you see this in yourself. So my, my wife um, studies education um because she um that's what she got her degree in in college and she homeschooled her kids and whatnot and one of the things in education is uh how you teach kids who have different like intelligent levels Mm. um right because that like it changes how you approach the child and how you uh how you teach them and how you you reinforce ideas and whatnot based on you know like like IQ levels have like a what do you call it a like a real impact on how a kid learns um so my wife was studying some of this and she came across some interesting studies, um, that she was like, I found you. She's like, I found you in the way that you think in, in, um, in some of these studies. And I was like, Oh, sure. Lay, lay it on me kind of thing in the group of kids who are considered smart, right. The kids who are higher than average intelligence, um, they generally break out into two groups of, of children, right. You, um, so the, you have what they call the, um, the smart kids and then you have the bright kids and the difference that they make the delineation is a a smart kid or a bright kid is going to be the kind of kind of kid who like you put a question in front of them and they immediately have the answer right so if you say what's one plus one they're going to say two and not even think about it Mm -hmm. right and the the other kids right the the smaller subset of your intelligent kids you're going to say what's one plus one and they're going to ask you a question right? They're going to respond with like, why are you interested in knowing what one plus one is? Mm-hmm. Like, what type of what type of one are we talking about? Are we talking about one monkey plus one monkey is going to equal three monkeys? Or are <laughs> we talking about like one egg plus two eggs, we put them together, we now have two eggs, like what's going on here, right? They want to know the context, they want to yeah. ask questions, they want to get deeper. Um, and like, that's a different type of intelligence. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a much smaller subset of people, right? So they say if, if, uh, if you break down your, your intelligent kids, 80% of your intelligent kids are going to be the, you ask them a question, you get an answer. And about 20% of those, yeah, about 20% of those kids are going to be the kind of kids where you ask them a question and what you get back is not an answer. You get another question, mm-hmm. right? And that smaller subset is the, the subset where savants come in, right? So like if you ever watched Big Bang Theory, Sheldon Cooper would be one of the, uh, the a savant is going to be in that subset. Of of people, where where they are, um, they're constantly asking questions and digging deeper and going in places like that, um, and it's a completely different way to think, um, and you approach the world differently. Um, so you approach you approach questions, and you approach approach a lot of things sort of um, from that um, from that that, like you're not really interested in getting like, I don't know quite how to say this, because you were talking about. Um, about once you've learned the thing, like you're done, mm-hmm. like I figured it out, like I, I answered the question why, so it no longer interests you, mm-hmm. right, it doesn't matter how many steps there are to completion, you're like, I've, I've got it done, I'm figured out, I moved on to something else, right. um, and I'm that way, right, so I'm curious if that's, if you see that in yourself, right, like where right. the way that you think yeah. is not necessarily.
1: The, the idea of asking additional questions, though, are like sort of challenging, I wonder how much of that is like a nature-nurture thing. Because I think I was really encouraged as a kid. Like my mom often said to us, like the best way to let somebody know that you're listening to them is to ask really good questions because it shows them that you're interested and you're engaged, but also that you're really listening to the content of what they're saying. And I know a lot of other people, especially now as adults, that get really pissed off when people ask them questions. And so my mom wasn't 100% (laughs) right, right? Like maybe if you're hanging out with, you know, sort of intellectual, like academic type people then they appreciate that sort of like extra analysis or the thoughtfulness that goes into asking a good question. But for a lot of people who are, want to be in control, right, and want people to respect their authority, they do not like it when you do that. And I think that was something that I really had to learn. And because I always thought it was like sort of a sign of being polite, right, it was like asking questions. And I think when my husband and I were dating, he had a nickname for me where he was like, you know, you're the Riddler. And I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, you could literally have like a cape with question marks on the back because like you never stop asking questions. And I was like, well, is that obnoxious? And he's like, no, but it can be exhausting. And I'm like, well, I'm just trying to show that I'm interested, right? Like I'm really curious about what you're talking about. And I also think like as a kid, a lot of times people would be talking about things that I really didn't understand and it was pretty boring. And that the way I could engage was to say like, oh, explain that to me or how does that work? And then people would often be like, Wow, that was a really profound conversation that I had with Emily, who's 10, right? And I wasn't trying to be profound. I was literally just didn't understand it. And as a journalist now, especially covering medical stuff, it's fascinating to me how much asking really simple questions can not unravel the person, but can take them aback because so much of like what you were saying is like they learn this in med school and then they repeat it, right? Right. And when you say to them, but why? Or what is the mechanism of action that's causing that that symptom or that disease? They're like, well, what? Like, what do you? And you're like, well, don't you want to know why that's happening in the body? Like, what is biologically happening that's causing cancer, right? Great, huge, we've spent billions of dollars on cancer research. Nobody really understands cancer, right? Is it a genetic disease? I don't know. I'm not convinced because I think like there is so much about what they found with like mapping the cancer genome that suggests that it is like far more complex than what we thought it was, right? And so I think this idea of asking questions for me really started as like a way of dealing with boredom (laughs) and also like wanting to be polite. And And it's come back to kick me in the ass because a lot of times people will be like, wow, you're really aggressive. And I'm like, what, I'm trying to be polite. Like I'm not trying to be aggressive,
0: (laughs) you know? So. And and I think I think that's exactly my point, though, is it's not it's not a common thing, right, to be the kind of person who wants to and generally is interested in asking the questions and getting deeper on it. Um, even with really smart people, a lot of times it's like, I've got the here's the problem. Here's the answer. I got the answer. Um, yeah. And and they're not they're not questioning their premises. Right. Um, and and it's not a it's not a common thing. So I think you have the benefit of having gotten both the nature and the nurture for for the uh the desire to, to delve into questions um, and, and do all of that. But yeah, I think, I think uh, it's, it's a unique skill to be able to see beyond what is presented to you and ask the deeper questions, right? To question the premises and to question, like, the reasons why we're doing the studies the way we are and doing some stuff like that, because um, I, I don't think it's a common skill.
1: Yeah, I mean, and I, I think, you know, when you're saying it like that, I really think it does go back to the fact that, like, I always knew, like, in some ways, I always wanted to disprove my older sister, do you know what i mean she was so yeah. smart and she knew how to, she could read like coming out of the womb right and she just like sort of <laughs> this knowledge and so it was like there was definitely a motivation and a competitive sense of being like well maybe she's wrong so how do you know that and how do you know this right and so i wonder if that was part of it too i've never really thought of it that way but that would definitely make sense that it's like there's oh there can be a debate quality to it right where you sort of are doing a socratic mm. method where you're getting somebody to explain something that really comes around to your original point, right? By asking enough questions, yeah. you can kind of get them to make your point for you. Um, yeah, so yeah. it's,
0: a, know, it's I, persuasion 101.
1: Right, right, right. <laughs> Which I, you know, I think is really useful, but I also think like it's you've got to have both because if you're just somebody who's sort of on the attack, that's really unpleasant, and it's unpleasant for you too, yeah. and right? You're acting the, in- The, the defense, other
0: thing right? that's really useful useful to know about it too, is to know where the weakness are, weaknesses are of that type of thinking. Mm-hmm. And like you mentioned, being the kind of person who's like, I got bored with this. Did you get bored because that's the, like, it, it didn't engage your your questioning stuff anymore? Or are you bored because you actually, um, because because there's still more to learn here and you just, you need to move on. And so like, like one of the things, my, my wife's on the other end of the spectrum where she's like, she's very, very bright, but she's like, I want to, you know, present me with the information and I'll get you the answer. Mm -hmm. Um, and so someone like that is like, she's really, really good at getting the things done. And I'm really, really good at like figuring out why we should do the things. But then once I figured it out, I don't care anymore. Like, and then I don't get anything done. Right. (laughs) So like you need, you need to sort of temper it. And whether that's by having someone to push you and make you do the things you don't want to do, or by just realizing that, Hey, I need to work on that part of my personality. Um, Mm -hmm. it's just useful to be aware of.
1: Yeah, no, definitely. You know, and it's funny because I feel like my husband is brilliant and if you watch jeopardy with him you like want to throw the remote control at his head because it's like yeah. he like knows the answer and i'm like i haven't even had time to like finish reading the question and like how do you do that it's incredible his recall memory is way beyond anything that i will ever be capable of and so he and i come at these things from very different points of view too i mean he's very analytical but it's you're right i mean in some ways I, it sounds like a similar kind of complementary relationship where you know, I'll like, he often jokes that uh, like, we'll be at a cocktail party or something and I'll be like, oh, you know, it's okay, it's time to go. And then I'll spend like an hour saying goodbye to people and it drives him nuts, right? Cause he's like, you literally, somebody's like, Oh, you like want to get it done. Right. <laughs> oh, and like, thanks for coming. And I'm like, oh yeah. And will I see you on Tuesday? Or like, is this happening? Or what about this? And Or the person will say something and he's like, you just can't help yourself. You just start asking questions. And then the conversation keeps going and we don't ever leave. And it's like, that's true. <laughs> can't help it because I like to engage you
0: know yeah yeah my my wife and I have had literally the exact conversation (laughs) with the other way around because like we'll go somewhere and she's like I'm ready to leave and like two hours later I've talked to like 14 different people and I'm like she's she's like I'm like we we've gotten to points like some some things where it's like uh we'll go to an event and she'll like bring an extra vehicle yeah. Or an extra way to go home. She's right. like, she's like, I know you're going to stay there and talk for two hours longer than I want to. Yeah, right.
1: And that's the key to marriage is like acknowledging that, not getting mad about it, but coming up with yeah. like different exit strategies.
0: Yeah, she's like, because if I stayed there with you, I would just, I would want to pull your hair out. So.
1: <laughs> yes, that sounds yeah.
0: very similar. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So let me uh, let me move on a little bit and talk about um, your common enemy. So I like the common enemy, I like to think of the common enemy in terms of that's something that you're fighting against with your clientele, right. So I think this probably makes a lot of sense inside of the uh, the context of your, your gym business. Um, the ladies that come to you, what's something that you, you constantly find yourself having to fight against to help them like move past so they can get the results they're looking for that you sort of run into on a regular basis, something you have, you have to fight against with them. What do you think that is?
1: I mean, I think misinformation is probably across the board the thing that is the common enemy because um you know, so many, especially women, have come in trying millions of different diets, right, and some of them quite restrictive and unpleasant, you know, psychologically, physically, the whole deal, and they they feel like failures, and so part of the job of the managers in the studios who do the nutrition counseling um, is to kind of say to them, like, whoa, like, your body doesn't really want to be starved, right? So like, we're not going to starve you. That doesn't actually work long-term. And like, we have clients who have been with us for years and years and years. They've gotten great results, but they love coming and they're never gonna leave because we're not a quick fix model. And I think women get really taken advantage of, you know, which is something we could talk about in the, the realm of the podcast too, where, you know, they're just sort of dismissed when it comes to health. And I think fad diets are probably like top of the leaderboard in terms of manipulation of women. And also just like you were saying with the egg studies, like just really garbage information out there. And so then yeah. there becomes this breakdown in trust, right? And so you read something one day and then you read the opposite thing the next day and you think, my God, no one's gonna be able to help me because-
0: like, no how do you know? One. How do you know what to trust if everything, and like it, it's changed completely over the last 10 years too because of our access to information. Mm-hmm. like. You know, before the medical community would argue amongst themselves about whether or not eggs were good and nobody would know. But now, like, it's on your Facebook news feed. Yesterday, eggs were good. Today, you know, eggs yeah. are bad. Tomorrow, eggs are bad and good again. Right. So everyone knows we're all confused.
1: Right. And I think, you know, that you could make the same argument about the media. Right. It used to be that there were three network news channels. And you tuned into one of them every night at six o'clock. And whoever was the guy behind the anchor desk was the guy that you got your news from. And that guy had a team of people behind him and they were sorting all of the news around the world. Right. And back then it really was around the world because all these news outlets, newspapers, TV, magazines, they had bureaus, right. Which we don't even have anymore. So like there was an office that was in mm-hmm. Turkey, right. It wasn't like oh, we got to drop some reporters in there or find some freelancers that are there. It's like, we've got a bureau. We have established relationships, right? Like, we can call on those people. Bloomberg, I think, is the only one who really still does that. Um, But what's interesting is that, you know, now it's become this, and when I was, I got a master's at Northwestern in journalism, and one of the things that was a big topic of conversation getting your master's is do you, you know, and this goes down to like what words you use. Like, do you write at a eighth grade level Or do you write at a fourth grade level so that everybody can read and understand what you're writing? Or do you encourage people Mm -hmm. to like, go get a dictionary and look up a word, right? And your choices about those things are editorial choices that you're making that will influence the news cycle. And I think that since we've developed the like sort of 24 hour cable news cycle, and certainly with the disruption of the internet and the sort of blogosphere which came into the picture which I think journalists felt so threatened by, and they shouldn't have. They should have said, like, I'm trained, right? Like, I'm a member of the fourth estate. I have constitutional protection. I can be privy to a crime and not be considered an accomplice because I'm a journalist, right? And I've been trained to be a journalist. That is quite different than somebody who, like, throws up a web page, right? And, like, now is doing some sort of citizen reporting. But instead of acknowledging, like, wow, this is really cool. All these people are interested in journalism. Like, but it's different than what we're doing. It became this like race to the bottom where it was like, oh my God, let's throw some listicles up and like hope we get more clicks.
0: Yeah.
1: I mean, I'm involved yeah, in it's, it's of, like, a lot sort of like
0: clickbait, clickbaity. Yeah.
1: And I think now it's really it's gotten dangerous, right? Where this whole idea of like fake news and like that's not that's not good for any of us. And I don't care where you are in the political spectrum, yeah. like you need to have a free press that's doing good reporting to hold people in power accountable. Like that's it, full stop. And I think we've lost that, you know, and I think like even I'm in some um, sort of like secret reporter messaging groups. um, And about a year ago, there was a huge dialogue about some online news sites that were getting rid of, most of them have gotten rid of the dateline, which is like basically where you are reporting from. So it used to say like Boston Mass, right? And then it would have the story. Most places don't have that anymore. But now they're starting to get rid of the time and date because search engines will prioritize the most recent information. You get rid of the date of a story. Now it becomes like we could, we could search something from, you know, the, oh, the mortgage crisis, right? Like yeah. the more, if you Googled that and it came up today, you'd be like, shit, the stock market's crashing. Like what happened? But no, it's from years ago, right? And it's like just that news outlet is really trying to trick the Google algorithms. But it's like in journalism, what, where, when, why? Like the five Ws are so important. And we're just knocking them off to satisfy algorithms? Like what? No, you can't do that, right? Like that's absolutely against the rules. But I'm like a dinosaur because people are like, well, you have to do it or you won't survive or you have to do it or it's like, your stuff won't come up because BuzzFeed will be faster or they'll produce more. And so their stuff will come up more regularly. And I'm like, at some point, the cream will rise, right? And the crap will sink. Mm -hmm. And like, that's how it should be, right? So if you have really good content, which is sort of what we're trying to do with the podcast, Like we haven't accepted any sponsorships, we're taking donations, but we're not, I'm like kind of uncomfortable with the, you know, a very small operation taking money from anybody. And I feel like we're really going to keep producing excellent content with the world's experts on every topic. I mean, we have the best sources you can get. And hopefully, you know, people will enjoy that enough that they'll start donating more or we'll figure it out in some way, because I think there is a need for it. But
0: What I find really interesting about that too is like, if you actually look at um, what Google says they want to do, they want what you're saying to happen, to happen, yeah, right? But they're not there yet so their algorithms are manipulatable Mm -hmm. and in order to drive the dollar the news is manipulating is doing whatever manipulating they can to show up at the top of their search engine results and it's not just google right it's google and facebook and twitter and all the different places have their different algorithms but you know google is just our favorite our favorite one to pick on um because it's the biggest um but yeah and it's it's amazing to see right because i remember watching the news as a kid with my parents and i remember like reading the news in the newspaper and it was it was like this is what's happening and this is where it's happening this is why it's happening and if you watch the news today they're like joe Smo on twitter said this happened and like (laughs) i'm like how is how is you doing a twitter search investigative journalism
1: right well and also or like my favorite like the local news (laughs) is like the bacteria in your refrigerator is going to kill you stay tuned and you're like what (laughs) what are we talking about like these are not the stories that yeah. are the most useful, right? That the citizenry needs to know and understand and make voting decisions based on. These are the stories that are going to keep people watching through the ads, right? That's totally yeah. different, and that serves a very different purpose, right? Not helpful to the democracy, right? But necessary. Yeah,
0: right? and and to your point, that's the uh, that's the misinformation we're dealing with, right? Is we're dealing with with stuff that's either not relevant or it's not it's not it's not a, you know, to use the juxtaposition. It's not real news, right? right. right. But what all, the, what all the people on the ground with Twitter say is not like, that's not the news. That's just, it's, it's people's perspective on what's going on, right? right? And I'm so like, like.
1: The inside way of saying that is, it, is it the news that they need or is it the news that they want? And it's like, that sounds like a tough parent, right? It's like, this is what you, you may not want this, but this is what you need, right? And that you homeschool your kids, you know this better than I do. Like sometimes you have to find a way of getting them to absorb information that's really important for them to understand, but that's either hard or complex or not as sexy or interesting or whatever. But it actually in the long run is the stuff they really need to know. And it's, I feel the same way about, you know, sort of reporting in general, like, you know, whether it's like yeah. celebrity news or whatever, like that's great. Consume that stuff for sure. I'm not saying like don't have any lowbrow stuff, but I think it's got to be mixed in with some real stuff that you are assuming people have a baseline of education that they'll be able to understand. And if they don't, you're sparking a curiosity in them that's going to make them want to look it up and be interested in it. And I feel like that's really idealistic yeah, in I, the current environment. I but that is how I just we had that
0: conversation. The- I just had that conversation yesterday with my son, right? He was, he was, you know, we were uh, having a hard time focusing on his math. Um, And, and he was, you know, after he was done with math, it took him like three hours. It should have taken him like 45 minutes because he was dawdling and looking at other things and, you know, not paying attention. And, and uh, his mom was being hard on him about it. And he finally finished and he was like, yeah, I'm finished. And he immediately got into the thing that he's passionate about, which is he wants to be a falconer when he grows up and he started talking about all that and, you know, getting into all that stuff. And I stopped him and I was like, see, here's the thing your mom is trying to force you to learn how to focus because she knows that when you get to the point where you can't actually start studying to be a falconer, you're going to have to be able to have that skill, right? Mm -hmm. You need to be able to focus and do the things that you want to do. And it's like, it's, we're not just being mean to you. We're not like making you do these things because we have to make you do these things. You have to, you have to learn the skill of being able to focus and get work done even if you don't like it, Mm -hmm. right? Because that's, that's going to let you do the things that you want to do later
1: hmm That's absolutely right. I mean, and I think that's such a hard, I remember giving my like algebra teacher such a hard time being like, when am I ever going to use this? This is like totally pointless. And I remember him looking at me and being like, it's training your brain so that you can do more complex problems next. And I was like, training my brain? Like, what are you talking about? I'm
0: like, that's so dumb. I don't need to train my brain. Yes, I'm having that exact conversation with my child right now. So <laughs> <laughs> I totally get it. Uh, so my next question for you is the flip side, right? So if you're, if you a uh, common enemy is the thing you fight against, your driving force is the thing you fight for, right? So just like Google fights to index and categorize all the world's information, or, you know, Batman fights to save Gotham, what is it that you fight for with your businesses?
1: I think I have always wanted to give a voice to people who don't have one.
0: So and I think what, that, the- what does that sort of mean?
1: I think it means getting into situations where there needs to be sort of amplification of an issue, meaning like a voice, whether it's an individual's or something larger than that. So, like with the podcast, certainly it is all around women's health and this idea that like women don't even know that the information that they're getting at the doctor is not based on their bodies, right? And that we can talk to experts about all of these different things and give women information so that they can then go to the doctor and have an actual conversation that will benefit them. So we're giving, we're arming women. I mean, it's sort of like a revolution. Like we're giving women the knowledge that they need so that they can lead like I say, healthier, happier lives. And I mean that from the bottom of my heart. I don't think you can make good decisions if you don't have good information. And I think that has always been something that has bothered me, whether it's like, you know, gossip that people are saying about somebody that you're friends with, right? Or it's information that goes really to the heart of your medical care. You need to know what's right and what's wrong and what the research is. I mean, we're doing a big episode that's not out yet on mammograms. And the efficacy of mammograms as a screening test is terrible. I mean, it is so bad. And yet, statistically, everybody turns 40 and they go and get a mammogram and it's just what you do. And it's like, why? And so all these, it's such a polarizing topic because these statisticians, right, who have like really run the numbers have found that like, you know, there's a great study that's a 25 year longitudinal study that was done in Canada that looked at, they randomized women, right? So like one group got mammograms, one group did not. And it's basically the same number of women that get cancer in both groups. And it's the same number of deaths. So And, you know, at the same time, those are population-based studies, so we have to be really careful about, like, I'm not going to say to my mom or my sisters, don't get a mammogram, because it's a crappy test, but I will say to them, like, if you feel any sort of symptoms or, like, you feel sick in any way, you have to get a mammogram. If you decide not to get a mammogram, you're probably okay. Like, it's not, it doesn't seem, like, statistically, it's, like, less than 2% of American women develop breast cancer. And so if you unplugged these mammogram machines and you randomly checked, like just sort of ticked off 2% of the population, you'd have about the same results. I mean, that's sort of the positive predictive value that we've found with these tests, but that is so hard to talk about because People feel so like, oh, I had a mammogram and it found breast cancer. Like, how can you tell me not to get one? And so I feel like part of my job is to give the information to women. And I'm not going to tell you what to do with it. That's your choice. But at least you have the information so you can have an informed conversation with your mother, daughter, friends, and certainly with your doctor. Because in my experience, and certainly what we hear over and over again on Empowered Health, is this idea that women go to the doctor and they say, hey, I don't feel great these are my symptoms and doctors are like you know what you're depressed or you have anxiety right these are like the most common diagnoses that women have that's not actually true like they're presenting real physiological symptoms and at the very least they should be tested for things that would fit in those categories and they're not and so my hope is the more that we share this information and i think we have a lot of doctors who listen to the podcast which is great that will allow the doctors to become more curious and more informed and realize that there are many different ways of looking at a lot of these things. Um, and it also will arm up the patients to go in and say like, oh, well, I mean, and our show notes are really extensive. So they are transcripts of the shows, but then they link out to every study that's mentioned. So it's really easy for women to go and listen and say like, oh, I don't know about that. i would never seen anything like that. And then they can go to the JAMA article and actually read the original study with the breakdown of everything in it. Um, So, you know, and most people aren't going to probably do that. But if it's something where you're really worried about your mom, or you're really worried about yourself, and you're trying to find good information, we spend a ton of time sifting through and really trying to find the right topics and the right information for women to be able to make the best decisions for themselves. So I think that's where I feel like we're giving voice to people.
0: I have I have uh, two thoughts. One of them was on the the idea of giving voice to someone. the The picture that came to my head is like taking, taking individual conversations like that you would have on a on a individual level and being able to raise them up into societal conversations. Mm-hmm. It's almost like what you mean when you're saying giving someone a voice. Like right? we're we're taking stuff that's not heard in the in the bigger conversations and raising them up into the place where people can hear those. Is that sort of?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Like- and also just sort of raising some. Um, like starting a little bit of a fire, right? Like if you went to the doctor and you said, you know, I'm having night sweats um, and really like, I feel super moody and I'm not sure my, sometimes my heart is racing. And they said, Oh, it sounds like maybe you're going through menopause. We're going to give you some hormone replacement drugs. And you'd be like, Oh no, wait, sorry. I'm a dude. I'm not going through menopause. Right. That's basically for (laughs) me the equivalent of what happens to women when they go to the doctor, they're given advice based on tests that have been run or clinical trials that have been done on men. Women are not allowed to be in clinical trials if they're of childbearing ages. So that means like basically like 20 to 37 or 40, you cannot be in a clinical trial. So they have not tested on you. So it's like I take the same dose of aspirin or whatever as my husband or prescribed the same kind of antibiotics in the same dosage. Why? That's crazy. It affects my body totally differently. I'm a different size than he is. At the very least, you'd think, would be scaling medications based on for smaller bodies we're not none of that right so i mean aspirin is actually a really great example like it's the one of the longest largest clinical trials ever done looks at the use of aspirin and the benefits right they didn't test it there's not a single woman in that study not one women are routinely told to take aspirin when they fly or anything they don't know there's i mean it maybe it's true but we don't know It's insane. It's totally insane. So, I mean, I feel like I often say to people, like, I've covered really complex crime. I've covered technology with Congress, right? So you've got government and technology mixed together, which is a crazy cluster. And women's health is, like, the dumpster fire of it all. Like, it is such a mess. And the fact that people don't even realize it's such a mess is what has gotten me so revved up in this project because it's like... Um, It's just insane to me that you go to the doctor and, I mean, statins are another one. Women who are, you know, people think we should put statins in the water to reduce cholesterol. Women's cholesterol runs higher than men's naturally. And a healthy woman, her HDL, which is her good cholesterol, if you're going to consider one to be good, would be higher. And yet that's not given any consideration in terms of the markers for when you should prescribe a statin, right? So the markers are probably based on men. And then on top of that, women are like 400 times more likely to develop diabetes if they're put on a statin. So every doctor who's prescribing should be basically sitting down with their patient and saying, look, your cholesterol is high, but you're also overweight and you have these other, you know, whatever, your A1C is high, you have high inflammation, you're more likely to develop diabetes so I'm not going to give you the stem. Instead, you really need to lose 20 pounds. Like, that's what you need to do. Not give you a drug that's going to cause another problem that's going to require more drugs. That's crazy. That's, like, that's how we treat. Yeah.
0: And I, I think there's there's interesting things that are happening, too, like, politically right now with gender that is, I think, affecting the medical community. Um, and, like, I don't know, I'm not exactly sure. Like, I I was watching a uh, another investigative journalist who was talking about um, how they're treating women's health in uh, what do you call them in the the birth centers like not birth centers uh, but
1: like maternal pregnancy mortality that kind of stuff yeah
0: yeah yeah and they they went they went into uh, um, went in for to one of the clinics for a pregnancy and he dressed himself up as a transgender woman um, and brought a friend of his who was pregnant brought his her urine with him to go get a pregnancy test. Um, and basically it was a positive pregnancy test, right? That's what he was going to see, like how how would they respond to a transgender woman with a positive pregnancy test? And it blew me away because they brought their secret cams and whatnot. And they basically told him and said, you're pregnant. Um, and he's very obviously a six foot two man dressed in women's clothing, yeah. right? Um, and he's not pregnant. Like there's no way he could be pregnant. And a man who gets pregnant, who who has, and the reason they did this this study was because a a man with a positive pregnancy test has testicular cancer, right? Oh, like that's, like that's, that's what you should, as a doctor, you should be like, you came back with a positive pregnancy test mm-hmm. and you have, you have male genitalia, like this is a bad thing, yeah,
1: yeah, right? Yeah. And
0: like that's you you have the markers for testicular cancer. Um, and they didn't, right? They were like, you're dressed as a woman, you're pregnant. Here's all the things you need to know about being pregnant. And they sent him on his way. Oh, right. that's and fascinating, like, oh,
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah, really interesting stuff. And like, I don't know sure how much that plays in, like how much the political stuff plays into it, but I'm sure there's a part of that that comes into uh, like how, you know, uh, it feels like we're trying to erase women, which doesn't make any sense.
1: Yeah, no, you know, I think it, that you can definitely get into really interesting research if you look at how money is spent. So mm-hmm. like I did a big story um, for the New York Times on the maternal mortality crisis and looking at the C-section rates, which have gone like through the roof Absolutely, yeah. 500% since the 70s. So, like, it's more dangerous to give birth today than it was when our moms gave birth. Um, And if you're a Black woman, it is like off the charts, really, I mean, genuinely scary um, in a way that you're like, wait, this is America? What are we, what is
0: happening? (laughs) What's going on? Yeah.
1: And if you look at how the government spends money, it's like 85% of the money spent on maternal, you know, issues goes to the baby not to the woman. And that to me is really symptomatic of the larger issues, which are we, you know, first of all, the fact that like mom and baby are in the same bundle budget is crazy, right? Totally different patients experiencing very different medical needs, um, different symptoms, different everything, but they're put together in the same like this is how much money we're going to give to research on this topic. And then on top of that, you sort of think like wait, women are getting 15% of all the funding. That's nuts, right? That's crazy. And it's, yeah. you know, across the board, we see this, right? So it's the same with the clinical trials that women aren't allowed to be in. Like women, most pregnant women take a prescription medication. The majority do and do not know because there's never been any testing on what it does to the baby or the mom. What? Like, where, you know, and across the board, the sort of consumer protection is not there. And you look at other countries and you sort of think, gosh, they figured this out and we're way behind in a way that, you know, whether it's, you know, blatant sexism or just prioritizing things, it does feel like it needs to change. Like it's not right. And, you know, I don't think people I hate the idea that people are like, oh, you know. That they're trying to make women invisible or whatever. But I think you sort of take it like you take some of these things and you look at them in isolation. And if you pretended that you were like an alien coming down from another planet and you were looking at how you value life, you would definitely see, you know, I mean, I feel this way about like domestic violence stuff too. Men are often given second chances, right? When it's like the woman and the children who are the ones that are sort of the most vulnerable, and that you're taking a chance with their lives on the off chance that this guy has gotten his, you know, stuff together enough that he can re-enter the family or be responsible for children. That's not the right value system. I mean, I'm not saying that I'm against redemption or forgiveness or whatever, but when it comes to really like safety issues, no way, no way, right? Yeah. So... I think there is a value judgment that's coming out in a lot of this medical stuff. And I think the maternal mortality crisis is a big one because it's outrageous, yeah. you know.
0: When our, uh, when our son was born, that was actually one of the things that uh, when we were picking hospitals um, for, for our son, um, we, were, we looked at uh, the mortality rate for mothers and we looked at the C-section rate. Good yeah. for you. And it's really interesting because like one of the hospitals in town um, had a thirty-seven percent C section rate.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and other hospital in town is had the
1: national average. Yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah. And one of the other hospitals in town had a three percent C section rate. But you could guess which one we picked.
1: Yeah. <laughs> you know, most um, people don't even know that you can look that up, right? So mm-hmm. like that that's awesome that you guys did that because like Consumer Reports did a big write-up on like C-section rates in hospitals, which was like the first sort of big national, LeapFrog is another great organization that has sort of made those that information public. But like you absolutely, if you have choices, you should shop around because there's a culture Mm -hmm. in the labor ward that's making something go wrong. And the long-term impact for women is significant. I mean, it's a higher mortality rate if you have a C-section. And the risks from having a Mm -hmm. C-section can cause death up to five years later. No one's tracking that, right? Like my daughter's five. I didn't have a C-section, but if I did and I died, is anybody going to look at my, like, you know, my death certificate is not going to say like death due to complications from a C-section five years ago, right? And so I think all of that death records are like a whole other topic which we could get into, which are fascinating. Man, what do you list? I've done a lot of.
0: I've done a lot of, uh, lot of studies on that. I mentioned, uh, I mentioned earlier, we did a bunch of research on the circumcision stuff. Yeah. Um, and circumcision, death, by, death from circumcision is vastly underreported for the same reason. Oh, because you can, have, you can have symptoms from, in the baby that will actually kill them that happen months, sometimes even years later. Um, that can be directly traced back to the circumcision, but will never, never be linked to it. So the uh, the actual wow. like infant mortality rate caused by circumcision for, in males is a lot higher than any of the studies will show because because of how far into the future things can happen. Wow. Um, yeah. I, so yeah, I didn't know
1: that.
0: Yeah, like w- one of the things I'm I'm gonna probably get the word wrong, the medical word. It Maybe it's hyposplasia, um, but the scar tissue where the uh, the the top part of the circumcision and the bottom part of the circumcision come together, that can, that can break at any time in your life. Like throughout the history of your, your life and you can bleed out. Um, wow. And, yeah. Like, and that's, that, that, that's like a thing, but nobody knows that.
1: Right. Uh,
0: um, right. And it's not associated with the circumcision, right? It's like, Oh, he had an injury to his, his genitals or whatever. And it's not, it's not tied back. Yeah. Um, so like, it's the same kind of thing. Right. Um, that we're not studying, like, what is, what is, what does a C-section look like five years down the road? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't know, I don't know how you deal with that. Like, I don't know what the, the, how you fix things you know, like that happening that
1: in places like in England, which, um, so the story that I wrote for the times was looking at other countries and how they've dealt with this problem and how we have it basically.
0: Yeah, And
1: we had about the same rates of maternal mortality as uh, the UK did in the forties and fifties. And then they were like, whoa, this is a public health crisis. We need to fix this. And so they they basically, what we did was like, we have blamed moms for being too old or too fat or whatever. And then we blamed doctors for saying like, you don't care about your patients. You just want to have deliver more babies in one night or the liability is too high. So everybody's doing C-sections. And they took a totally different approach, which was basically like, this is a healthcare problem. We need to fix this on a systemic level, not blame individual players, right? Like this is clearly happening across the board. And part of what they do now is when a mom dies, which is very rare in the UK anymore, because most babies are delivered by midwives. So they're not in these ICU type units anyway. But they Mm -hmm. also then do a full sort of retrospective where they like, look at the social media posts of the mom. They go back and they like talk to all of her friends and her family. And they see like, was she presenting symptoms? Did she not know those symptoms could have been you know, as life threatening as they turned out to be? What kind of intervention was there when, you know, most of these deaths are happening postpartum. And in the United States, women are expected to go back to work like six weeks later, right? If you have a massive surgery, you're not going back to work six weeks later without really increasing your risk of complications, right? So that's, I mean, these become very cultural rather than just medical problems. But the other big takeaway for me was like, they have somebody come to the mom's house, right, and say like, how's it going? And they hold the baby, and they talk to the mom, and they make sure that she's okay. We don't have any of that. We have like, oh, I've got to take my child to his or her pediatrician appointment like three times the first week that you're home or something, right? And then I've got to get myself to another appointment without the baby, right? So I've got to have somebody to help me. And it's like the whole system falls apart. So there's actually a woman who's doing a lot of really awesome work in North Carolina. And she is basically figured out that she needs to have a clinic that sees moms and babies together because moms are much more likely to show up for their postpartum visits if it's for the baby, right? So it's like, if my baby has to go to the pediatrician, then I'm not, he's not going to miss that appointment. I can miss mine, but he's not going to miss his because he's a baby, right? Mm -hmm. And so if you combine those appointments, ah, then you get to see mom too, right? Such a simple idea.
0: Something really, really interesting about that. I run a supplement company um, on on the side, and we have um, we have uh, what do you call it? Female multivitamins, like for women, and we have mm-hmm. men's multivitamins. And we have teens, and we have children. And we have baby, and we have prenatal. Um, and just off the top of your head, could you guess whether or not the prenatal vitamins or the women's multivitamins outsell? Like, which one I'm sells prenatal,
1: more? For sure, <laughs> for sure, a
0: hundred percent. Because we can't. We have the hardest time getting women to buy. Um, buy multivitamins for themselves. They'll mm-hmm. buy the men's multivitamins for their husband, and the teens' multivitamins for their teens, and the kids' multivitamins for their kids, and the prenatal multivitamins when they're pregnant. But they won't buy their own, mm-hmm. right? And it's just it's a it's um, I'm not sure if that's a uh, I don't know what you call it um, a cultural thing or just a it's a, a way that women think about themselves. They don't think about themselves until until they're caring for someone else. Um, right. So it's brilliant. It's brilliant to bring in like how do we get the. Uh, um, you know, it's the mom and the mom and the baby um, coming right. in for their appointment.
1: Right. Yeah. No. And I think it's like so, sort of, you know, that old um, analogy or adage or whatever of like, when you're on an airplane, you have to put your own oxygen mask on first, and then you put it on your kids, because if mm-hmm. you can't breathe, you're not going to be able to take care of your child. And like, I use that a lot in our yeah. wellness centers, because at Prime, you often hear people say like, oh, I don't have time, I can't. And it's like, well, if you're not healthy, Who's gonna take care of your kids? Like you've got to, if you want to be here for your kids, you've got to start taking care of yourself. And that's hard for women. That's really hard because it's like, well, this person needs this, and this person needs that, and it's like, what about you? You need some stuff too.
0: Yeah, you need to take a take a break, take care of yourself, right? You have to. Uh, um, we talk all the time in my entrepreneurial stuff with my clients. Uh, is you you have to be healthy and fit to run your business, or you're not going to be able to run your business, right? Like, it doesn't matter if you make all the money and do all the things if right. you die while you're doing it.
1: Yeah, that's <laughs> right. And that's such a good reminder, right? Because people also think like, oh, I just have to get all this stuff done. I fall prey to that all the time. Like, oh, I just have to push through all of this and then I'll be able to. And it's like, no, sometimes there is no end then. So you've got to find a way to incorporate it into your day. When you yeah,
0: know, yeah, it's, it's a, a concept I, I teach regularly. I call it a giving yourself permission to play. Mm. Right. And, and a lot of a lot of uh, entrepreneurs particularly suffer from this. And I think moms do, too, is is the idea that uh, um, I get all of my work done and I have earned my ability to play.
1: Uh-huh. Right.
0: My ability to relax. Um, and then the problem is, is like we have so many things to do that we feel like we've never gotten them done. So we never take that time. Right. Um, and it's because it's fundamentally it's backwards. Right. You cannot perform your best if you are not well rested and relaxed and well taken care of right? Mm-hmm. So it's it's foundational um, to your success in your other areas is taking care of yourself.
1: Mm-hmm. I also think just from a creative perspective, like oftentimes if I'm struggling about how to write something or what next project I want to take on, if I go and do something that seems, you know, totally separate, I mean, my husband will joke that I like to paint walls. So I'm not like painting masterpieces, but I'll be like, you know, we, this should be blue or we should make this green or... Like painting bathroom walls. And people are like, don't you have so much going on, right? Like you have a lot. And you are doing you're repainting your house. Like pay somebody to do that. I'm like, what are you doing? And I'm like, it really helps me. It helps me like just sort of sort my thoughts. And it also like it feels like I'm accomplishing something when I'm feeling stuck. Does that make sense? So I think everybody yeah, kind of yeah, has totally. to have their own painting walls or whatever you call it. But and then be able to, I guess, afford to have somebody come and fix it for you when you do a terrible job. But it's, you know, yeah. I don't know, I feel like sometimes being I have, bored is the best way to stimulate ideas.
0: I have uh, one of the things that I do is uh, um, I've realized that oh, we mentioned, we talked earlier, like that my, my desire to uh, constantly learn things. And like, once I figured it out, I'm bored, mm-hmm. um, is I have to sometimes move that out of my business and put it into something else. So I'll be like, I'm learning the piano. Because it's hard, and it's difficult. And it's something that I can just like, I can, I can scratch that itch in my head to have something hard that I'm trying to figure out. Mm-hmm. Um, and the same the thing as like learning to draw. And like, right now I'm going through a course on like learning to code, um, like, like code iPhone apps. And like, I don't have any need for those skills in my business or anything. It's just, it's, it's, for me, it's that same thing, right? It's, it's painting walls yeah it's scratching that itch and giving myself some other place to just do things that aren't related to like my work
1: <laughs> right well, um, and also you're you're still learning,
0: right like yeah. I mean I
1: would say coding is a little bit more intense than painting a wall, but yeah I, you know I see the similarity, and I you know I just think that there's there's so many different ways to have output, and we don't think about it that way. I mean, like we don't value downtime, right. Mm-hmm. And that's too bad because I think some of my best ideas have come when I've been really bored. So when I haven't been bored for a year or two, there's a part of me that feels like I just need to shut everything down and like, you know, organize my house or like do whatever, because it'll stimulate some new idea that I become really sort of obsessive about. But there's sort of like these, it's like a lot of entrepreneurs. I'm sure you've heard this before, but it's like the idea of like, you are really in the trenches and you're like, go, 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 go. And then you're like, you know what? I really need a paycheck and health insurance. So like, I'm going to stop this project for a little bit and go work for a big corporation where I'll make a lot of money and I'll have some flexibility and I'll be done at five o'clock. Right. I mean, I don't know the last time I was done at five o'clock, I put my kids to bed and often keep working. So it's like that you need to have breaks. And I think there are probably, I'm not sure anybody's ever studied this, but I bet you there are cycles. So people who are creative or people who are entrepreneurial, like I bet you there are different categories. They go through periods where they're incredibly, their output is huge. And then they need to kind of store up their reserve again and do it. You know what I mean? I I think it's very Uh, hard to do that just consistently.
0: I I have a a metaphor I use for that exact thing. Um, Like most people talk about like work-life balance, like it's one of those legal scales that they're trying to get (laughs) them to equal out. Um, And I think it's more like a rubber band, right? And we're like, sometimes sometimes you're stretching that rubber band a lot. Like, and there's only so far you can stretch a rubber band before it breaks, but it's really far, right? You can stretch (laughs) a rubber band really far and you can put a lot of work in and get a lot of dedication, get a lot of output. Um, And when you release that, you'll have a lot of forward momentum right? You can have a lot of forward momentum from that work. But the state of the rubber band after you've done that is relaxed, right? You need to have you need to have both, right? Because if you just always, always stretch, you'll break the rubber band.
1: (laughs) Right. Um, I love that. I've never heard that before. That's great.
0: Yeah, that's my that's my metaphor for 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 that. and, And, you know, helping entrepreneurs sort of understand how you have to you have to do both, right? You can't just constantly work and you can't just always be relaxed or you me move forward, right? Yeah, and I
1: also think, you know, so. there's something about like just knowing yourself again. I mean, I feel like it's like, we talk on the podcast about knowing your body, but it's also like knowing your mind. So it's like, there was that big article that was like in the, you know, it was the New York Times or Wall Street Journal maybe a year ago about how like Bezos works people to death. And that like, it's, you know, all these Amazon employees and then he basically says in like any kind of senior level interview, you know, you better not have a life because you're going to be here all the time. And there was such an interesting response to that because I feel like I, as a reporter, certainly, and as an entrepreneur, I'm always thinking of ideas, right? Like I'm always thinking of new stories. I'm always thinking of who I like I, at a party. I'm not like, I'm talking about work all the time, all the time for like 20 years. Right. But I think that's a joy. I don't think that that's yeah. A problem. So, like when I think of work life balance, for me, it really things changed and I had kids and I realized like they're not so interested in my work. I mean, sometimes they are, right? And I actually think it's wonderful to talk to them about the things that we're doing because I think they're curious and they can kind of relate to certain things. But I also think, and it gives them license to ask questions, right? And sort of have that curiosity and that stake in things. But I also think that there's something really important about, you know, just the idea that you, If you really love what you do, then the balance becomes a very different thing. Like you have to be able to maybe like find time to paint a wall or be bored, but it's not because you're trying to escape your job. We had um a couple years ago went on a family vacation with a bunch of other families, and like say it was a week long vacation. Then like Thursday, some of the other parents were like, "Oh, I can't believe the vacation is halfway through and we have to go back to work on Monday," and my husband and I were both like we can't wait to go back to work. <laughs> like, yeah, totally that really, it's really good to hang out with people, but like I've thought of 30 things that I want to write on this vacation and I can't concentrate. So like, it's really brainstorming vacation is for me and like sort of like thinking, like sort of exploring in a way. And then regular work is more output, but like, it was so interesting to be like, Oh my God, you're spending most of your time doing something that you hate and living for like the two weeks of vacation you get every year and when that's over, it feels like a funeral because now you're going to have to wait a really long time again before you get to do the things that you like to do. Like, don't do that. That's a horrible way. Yeah.
0: To I actually think that's why people think our traveling lifestyle is idyllic because they like, they, they, they think it's always vacation. Yeah. Um, and which is, you know, not true. But the, uh, <laughs> I like, I, I get the uh, I get the idea. Um, right. And, and um, it's, it's interesting because I'm the same way. Like one of the things, like when we drive, Um, I'm a marketer right that's what I I, I get paid to to write and get people to change their actions based on the words I say right that's like my thing and my wife and I like one of the games we play is what we're driving down the road and we pick apart the marketing messages on the billboards good bad indifferent how could you improve it things like that and it's just a fun exercise and like I can't like for me that's I mean it's work like that's what my work is but it's a game we play on the road. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Right. Because you love your work. I mean, I think that's what it means. Right. And it's like kind of always on your mind and you're always kind of trying to learn how to improve and be better or learn from other people or, you know, I mean, I think that's obviously what the whole podcast is, too, which is so fun. Jill is waving at me that we have to go because we have another interview in a little bit. So,
0: okay, so I have I have uh, I have one more question for you. Um, Actually, I've got two more questions, but one of them is sort of irrelevant you have a podcast and you have children. I'm curious if you've had the experience where your child has realized that you have a YouTube show and you're just as cool as the other people on YouTube. Because my son realized that recently and he was like, you have a YouTube show? And now he tells all of his friends, he's like, my dad's on YouTube.
1: That's really, so we aren't on YouTube yet. So I haven't had that privilege. But the kids do know that we have a po- that I have a podcast and um, they like definitely sometimes joke about it. And I go on TV from time to time. So sometimes they see me on TV and they're like, mom, is that really you? <laughs> like,
0: like, are you really famous?
1: Not, it's not my double. <laughs> like I don't have a <laughs> twin sister somewhere. Um, so, so yeah, but YouTube is a big deal.
0: So two quick questions for you. One of them is your guiding principles, right? Um, And just top one or two principles or actions you sort of put to use every day in your business that you think have really helped contribute to your success.
1: Um, so I think I'm pretty impact driven. So I always like to say to people or say to myself, you want to always be proud of everything you do. And so I think the idea that when I decide to do anything, I want to feel like it's contributing to something that's going to help people and that I'm going to look back on it and feel proud of it, which is, I guess, like, you know, sort of tough. Like, I think everybody has their own internal sense of what they take pride in or what they feel like is meaningful. And for me, that's a sort of a litmus test that I use a lot to sort of say, like, is this going to help somebody else? And will it make me feel good that I did it the way that I did it?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So impact is a top principle. So I know this interview went a little long, but a really fascinating conversation. And I even skipped a couple of my questions that we generally ask. So hopefully my audience forgives me for that, but it's really fascinating conversation. So last thing for you, where can people find you if they want to listen to your podcast or what areas your gym's in, or if they're interested in coming to your gym um, and they, they see that where, where can a, where can people do that?
1: Um, So the podcast you can find on empoweredhealthshow.com. Um, and our social medias are all basically around that. So inst- what is Instagram? Empowered Health Pod. Empowered Health Pod. And then um, my Instagram is news, not noise. Um, and then we're on Twitter, but we're not really s- like, I feel like Twitter is like just a lot of angry people. So I'm like sort of sometimes <laughs> on Twitter and then I take long breaks from Twitter because I sort of don't think it's always so productive. Um, but you can follow us on there and then prime the gyms are uh, the website is myprimefitness.com and they're in, um, the Boston suburbs, but you can also hopefully pretty soon, we're going to develop a curriculum that will be online for women who are not local. So you can definitely, if you go to the empoweredhealthshow.com site, you'll be able to sign up for our newsletter, which is where we're going to notify you about all kinds of stuff. And then I have two Business books that are business advice books that are coming out in August 2020 and we'll definitely blast our newsletter list about those books and giveaways and stuff like that. um, As we get closer to that drop date. So that's a good place. If you sign up for the newsletter, we can send you. We also have tons of vendors that we're going to start giving out as free product for people who are on that newsletter rather than taking money from them. We thought we would pass it on to our
0: listeners. Awesome. So thank you so much for coming on the uh, show today. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Um, if you are listening and you are interested in their stuff, definitely check out their uh, their show. The, it's Empowered Health Podcast. Yeah. Um, uh, I assume you can find that on iTunes, stuff like that. Uh, I'm probably going to subscribe to that, get my wife awesome. to listen to it because it sounds really good. Great. Um, and do uh, you have any final words of wisdom for our audience before we hit the uh, stop record button here?
1: No, I mean, I think the big takeaway for me, like after this, you know, hour and a half therapy session is really like, you got to find stuff that you really love to do. And like, just ask lots of questions because you're going to learn stuff about yourself and other people and engaging in the world is really, I think the key to being happy.
0: Absolutely. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Jill. Appreciate it.
1: Thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun.